Welcome to Left, Right, and Unwanted, the podcast where people across the political spectrum discuss ideas and politics. I'm Lauren, and I'm the left. I'm Morgan, and I'm the right. I'm Luke, and I'm the unwanted. The second chapter, where we're discussing what the spectacle looks like as a function of commodities. And he doesn't discuss the spectacle quite as much in chapter. I mean, he does. He doesn't. He doesn't. But he spends a lot more time establishing definitions of commodities, how they affect us. And then the spectacle, I thought, was more woven throughout. So it's, it's still in there, but there's a lot more other definitions he has to cover first. And I think he spends more time discussing previous works in chapter two, not so much his own meaning behind commodity and the spectacle. In, in Marxist theory, objects have use values. You know, I am a farmer. I create a plow so that I can plow my field. The plow has use value. And I plant corn so that I can eat it. It has use value. I can use it. But then when I, instead of eating the corn that I produce, I exchange it for something else. I now value the corn, not because it had, not for its use value, where I could eat it, I value it for its exchange value. And according to Marx, that's the point at which something becomes a commodity, when you're exchanging it for other things. When he talks about commodities, he's talking about the exchange, the pro- production of items for exchange rather than for their own use. I pulled Das Kapital, like quote for the definition. It's, he says, a commodity is, in the first place, an object outside of us, a thing that by its property satisfies human wants of some sort or another. The nature of such wants, whether, for instance, they spring from the stomach or from fancy, make no difference. Neither are we here concerned to know how the object satisfies these wants. Like you said, Luke, it's the difference between creating something for its use and then creating something to be used for exchange purposes. And usually the purpose of the exchange is to get more money that you can then use for future exchange. Do you guys have a quote that starts it all from Lukash? Yeah, Mm -hmm. correct. So it talks about how the commodity can only be understood in its undistorted essence when it becomes the universal category of society as a whole. Only in this context does the reification produced by commodity relations assume decisive importance for the evolution of society, only then does the commodity become crucial for the subjugation of men's consciousness. As labor is rationalized and mechanized man's lack of will is enforced, reinforced by the way in which his activity becomes less and less active and more and more contemplative. So reification, there's two aspects to it. So there's the objective part to it. And the objective portion of reification is when things start to be produced for exchange value than rather for use value. This This destroys the unity of the product. And then subjectively, reification impacts people by changing them from unified wholes into viewing their own mental states and capacities and physical capacities as objects that you can also exchange. So the quote from Lukash is, uh, a man's qualities and abilities are no longer an organic part of his personality. There are things he can own or dispose of like the various objects of the external world. He can now sell them in the marketplace. And this is what he's talking about when he's talking about reification. And he uses reification to introduce the difference between the quality of a product being important and now the perceived value of a product and 
social relationships you can get from it as taking over impulsions instead. In the next section, he talks about something called commodity fetishism. If I say fetish, obviously everyone thinks something sexual. Fetishism originally came about through this person who was talking about totems. What a fetish is, is when you ascribe something to an object that's not a nat that doesn't naturally come about from that object. So in totems, totems are a piece of wood. That's what they are. But certain cultures saw them as spiritual objects imbued with spiritual capacity. I mean, a fetish is when you just ascribe to something, something that's not naturally part of it. There's something inherently sexual about feet. Some people have a foot fetish and ascribe sexual things to feet. And in the case of commodity fetishism, we're exchanging goods in Marxist value, in, in the Marxist economic framework, you're actually exchanging the labor that's tied up in that. So if I work all day to make a table and you work all day to make a pair of shoes and we exchange them, what we're really exchanging in the Marxist framework is the stored up labor in the table and the stored up labor in the shoes. But what we're seeing is we're ascribing value to the shoes and the table rather than ascribing value to the labor. So we're putting value in shoes that shouldn't really be there. It's not inherent in the shoes. It's inherent in the labor that made the shoes. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about commodity fetishism. I've also heard it described as shifting from social relationships between people, shifting to being between objects, which, so if we go to your shoes and table example, I guess what, what Marx gets at when he discusses commodity fetishism is the difference between I created a table, you created shoes, we're going to have an understanding and exchange these. Taking ourselves out of it, you have two goods that can be swapped for different purposes. Losing the social agreement between the two of us when we were to trade back and forth, it's just now the commodity can almost trade on your behalf. It can act and it's not as important what went into it. It's just that it's here and it's available for exchange. Rather than us agreeing to exchange our labor, it's almost mm-hmm. we're just swapping the, the objects themselves rather than right. a part of ourselves. Well, and in the rest of this, he says this fetishism of the commodity attains its ultimate fulfillment in the spectacle. So the reason that commodities appear in this whole piece is because he believes the spectacle enhances what's going on with how he he perceives people relate to what they produce. Just like in in the shoes table example, our exchange of our labor is replaced by the seeming exchange of shoes and table. The tangible world, the world of work and labor is replaced by a selection of images and impose themselves as the tangible, an expansion of his idea that this other world is presenting itself as the real world. He says in 37, though, that within all these illusions, the world of the commodity is thus shown for what it is within the spectacle, because its development is identical to people's estrangement from each other and from everything they produce. So he's drawing a parallel between commodity fetishism And the fact that the spectacle is creating distance between people and their own perceived versus lived reality. So as this is happening, it's because it's being magnified and compounded within the spectacle. 
Yeah, he, he's comparing the separation of the real world from the world of spectacle to the separation of men from each other and also Marxist alienation from the product that they're creating. It all comes down to everything being separated and compared and put against each other. Yeah, I'm having a real hard time ex- explaining why I, my difference from this is just a fundamental difference in the nature of economics and value itself. It's hard to have an argument three steps away from where your actual disagreement is. It, it's sort of like if I started arguing with a vegetarian about the best way to cook steak. It really reminds me of the geocentric theories where people had the sun going around the earth and then they look at the skies and like Venus wasn't where it's supposed to be. So then they have to come up with an explanation for that and make the model more complex to account for this. And then it just kept building and building and building. And by the time of, you know, Copernicus and Galileo, they had these really, really insanely complex models to explain how the universe worked. But it all started from just a fundamental misunderstanding of where value comes from. They thought value was inherent in objects and exchanges happened between equivalent things of equivalent value. And then the Copernicans, in this case, the marginal revolutionaries came along and said, no, 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 there is no inherent value in objects. Value is all subjective and exchanges happen between things of unequal value. You don't exchange something for someone, something else because it's the same value. You exchange something for someone else because you, something else because you value it more than the thing you have. And the other person also exchanges it because they value what you have more than what they have. You have to have a double coincident, uh, coincidence of, of disagreements. Whereas Marx is a classical economist in the, in the same vein as Ricardo and Adam Smith and Aristotle, who see exchanges as between equal things rather than two unequal things from the opposite perspective. So that's really the example that I come up when I think of all this stuff that he's building up because it reminds me of a geocentric model that is insanely complicated and takes a lot of effort to create because this is a very viral step way, way, way back at the beginning. There's a reason that Marx is taught in literature classes and not economics classes. Thirty-eight. He starts discussing loss of quality in creating commodities. He sees this shift going from like being a system where quality is important. The degree to what you buy is useful, effective, going to last a long time is shifting to an emphasis on quantity, which I think actually we can still see in a lot of places today. I think there is a pretty clear shift in valuing quantity produced over quality because creating a lot of something is how you turn a profit. I I took that a different way. So when he talks about the category of the quantitative, I read that as money allows us to quantitize everything. Everything can now be numbers. It's quantitized. Education, you know, how much would you pay to go to this school? How much to go to this school? It's It's quantitized. But I actually see this as a good thing. Because if, if you go back to like Jeremy Bentham and the utilitarians, they were trying to talk about pleasure and they talked about it in these things called utils. And they'd be like, you know, eating an apple gives me 10 utils and a sunny day and seeing flowers gives me 20 utils. And they tried to, because they were trying to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. And so they wanted a, a unit. They wanted to quantitize things and, and money comes along and money allows us to do that. And he sees this as, as a negative, and I see it as positive because it enables us to exchange things. 
how much do I value going to the amusement park? Before you didn't have a way to, to communicate that to other people. But with money, you can say, would I pay $50 for a ticket? Yes. Would I pay $60 for a ticket? Would I pay 70? Would I pay 80? I wouldn't pay 90. I'd pay 80. It enables us to rank our wants. It enables us to know where we should be putting our efforts. Should I build an amusement park? Will that make more people happy? Or will it make more people happy to build a water park? Should I build roller coasters or water park? And with money, you can look at it and see what's going to satisfy the most people. What's the best use of our limited resources? There's an economist called Ludwig von Mises who talks about how money enables social calculation, where we as a society can decide where to spend our limited resources, our labor, our natural resources. What's the best and most efficient use of them? You need an ability to calculate and quantize things. Yeah, money is a more tangible unit than the util. It's something that, yeah, everybody can understand and put their own value on it. And it, yeah, represents it. Understandable term. That means the same to everybody. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't. I, I agree that it does allow you to make social calculations. I think the extent of that, of those calculations is determined by how much money the people you have, have in relation to each other. So like if I have $10 and Morgan has $100, we're going to think about each dollar in our possession very differently. So $80 to me is a lot different than $80 to Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or one of the crazy billionaires. Um, As I was speaking, I was like, oh, it does depend on how much you have. That's a very common idea. I, I think it's wrong. Well, I mean, there, there is something to it, obviously. Um, a very, very rich person is going to spend, can spend more on consumer goods than others. But if you're McDonald's or you're Six Flags or Disney World, you don't, you don't base your consumer model on what Jeff Bezos can afford. You base it on the vast bulk of humanity. Rolex does not target low-income people. Dollar stores do not target high-income people. There is a, a great diversity to society and economic life and they target different people and they're making different Mm -hmm. kinds of calculations but even that is still they're calculating within a certain sphere if i'm the dollar store i'm going to be more interested in people who make below a certain amount when i'm trying to figure out what to sell what to advertise what to push versus if i'm rolex i mean they both use the same type of calculations but they're going to probably draw different conclusions from the data they're prioritizing. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, every, every business has different market segments that they target. That's probably the, the best way to put it. But at the end of the day, if, if you're making a profit, it's because you are taking resources and transforming them in a way that makes them more valuable and maximizes the value in society for whatever market segment you're trying to push. That's the other point about money, though, like the government having the ability to just print a trillion dollar coin and pay for something that may or may not work. Our money has value because we say it has value. When money was still kind of being created and developed, it had a closer tie to the gold standard or to really being related to the products it represented. But today, the money we spend, the money we exchange back and forth, it's an agreement between all people who use it that this is the absolute value of it. Otherwise, having money doesn't really work. Money is just like any other product in which the value of it's subjective. As the government 
prints more, the value of it goes down. So it's where inflation comes from. Money isn't just whatever the government says it is. I mean, if you look at like the greenbacks or continentals, things can rapidly lose face value once the people stop valuing it at its face at its face value. We haven't had that yet. I mean, that's what causes hyperinflation. You know, Weimar Germany, Zimbabwe. It hasn't happened here yet. It will soon, um, especially if they keep running the printing press. I'm not, I'm not going to tell people to buy Bitcoin, but consider it. We got really far off topic. Yeah, once we start focusing on exchange and money, we can we can start calculating. Anyone have good things on 39? I think he might be getting at this concept of overproduction, which gets into something called Say's Law and the, the necessity of colonialism. So Marx had this idea as capitalism increases, you get this overabundance and overproduction of goods in a home market. And then the prices will crater because once everyone has 12 rugs, you don't need another rug. And so they have all this excess supply. And the way that countries deal with this is by invading less developed countries and then selling their crap there. This was an economic view that was actually believed by lots of people, not just Marxists, not just Marxists and, and, and socialists around the turn of the century. This was the whole argument. If you ever read like Henry Cabot Lodge and Theodore Roosevelt at the turn of the century, arguing that the United States needs to become a world empire and take on colonies in the Philippines and Guam and Cuba and Puerto Rico. A lot of them are making this argument. A lot of the smart economists were, were saying this, and it's really an extension of mercantilism where you know, if you even go back to the colonies, the a lot of the taxes and tariffs and things were designed to sell the manufactured goods made in England to the United States. And then the United States would provide cheap natural resources, you know, the cotton, the tobacco, molasses and things and, and send them back to the mother country. He, he's saying that the spectacle and as the spectacle has crossed the threshold of its own abundance, this is as yet true only locally at some point. So in the highly developed countries, that are overproducing, but it's already true on the universal scale, encompassing the earth as a world market. So he's basically saying overproduction is, is occurring as a whole on the whole and in certain countries, especially, but eventually we're going to reach market saturation with cheap crap. So the ever increasing supply is creating a different type of demand. And if you have too much supply, you need to go and put the demand somewhere else. Yes, I think that's a good summary. There's something called Say's Law. Basically, the, the response to this is human, human wants are infinite. It's not that we have too much stuff. It's that we have too much of the wrong stuff. This is an idea that, that takes root in Keynesianism as well, which is the dominant economic ideology. It's why you have things like stimulus packages. And the idea is that, oh, demand has dropped. Supply is too high. Demand has dropped. We need to increase demand to catch up to supply. So we're gonna give people a bunch of money so they can go out and spend it and create more demand for the supply that's currently out there. That's that, it's, it's the reasoning that, that underlies stimulus packages whenever there's a economic downturn. That's why mortgages became a thing was they wanted people to be able to buy houses so they'd stay in one place and then go spend money out. Yeah, the Fed deliberately created the, the, the mortgage bubble because the dot-com bubble popped. And so they said, well, we need to, create demand in a different market. Mortgage market looks great. Create a bubble there to offset the pop, popping bubble from the dot-com bubble. And then doesn't, people blame deregulation. Doesn't this also have to do with the fact that when you create a good, you can then create a market within that good? 
So think of, think about like, like Polly pocket is the first thing that came to my mind. Okay. So think about a Polly pocket. If you buy mm-hmm. one for yourself or for a small child, no judgment, you can also buy little accessories for your Polly pocket. So you buy the initial product, like the starter kit, the little thing for her to live in. And then you can get her this accessory. You can buy this pet. You can buy this house extension. So you have all of these goods. And it's not that you've tapped out the Polly Pocket market, but after everyone buys one, there's now this sub market. So everyone who owns a Polly Pocket, we haven't lost your interest yet. Now we can sell you this add-on or the Halloween package or the Thanksgiving table spread. And then within that, okay, you bought this year's Halloween costume. Now we're going to release like Polly's limited edition you know, it, it's sub-markets within markets. So it's not that you're going to hit a threshold of goods and be done fulfilling supply and demand relationships. Your goods can have sub-demands and you can have like a sub-supply beneath them. Rather than co- colonizing and creating new markets in foreign countries, you're creating new markets in people's heads psychologically. Or even, even within a video game, you can, you can spend money on your video game and buy your character like a special outfit or whatever. You can buy upgrades. You can use your own resources within the world of the game. Even if the game's marketed as free, there's ways for you to still supplement what you want. is really where he gets into the idea of human labor as being commodified as well. And I think we touched on this earlier when we introduced this within commodification, and it might have been within the fetishization discussion too, that you can now commodify pieces of yourself, facets of your personality, and truly what you produce. Um, Human labor can be exchanged too. So not just necessarily having goods go back and forth or goods being exchanged for money for goods. Labor in this system is a good in itself. So so he does give a nod to the fact that economic growth frees societies from the natural pressure, which required their direct struggle for survival. So economic growth, you know, makes Mm -hmm. it so you don't have to worry about constantly starving. But as as you were saying, he, he says it transforms human labor into commodity labor or wage labor, where rather than making a table, I'm making shoes. Now I am selling my labor in the form of wages. You know, I, I go to work for eight hours and I get paid. I don't get paid for each table I make, even. I get paid for my time, for my labor. And you may not be tied to a specific table. You may be tied to a small facet of the entire production. So it may not be your table at the end of the day. You may have worked on where the right top leg attaches to the top and other people whose labor is also commodified work on other aspects of the final product. Economic growth is people's liberator, but as he says, it is from their liberator that they are not liberated. So the economy transforms the world. You know, it's no longer hunter gatherers trying to make it by, but it transforms it only into a world of economy. It's allowed you to have a longer life expectancy and have fewer physical hardships, but 
economic growth for the sake of continued economic growth, you're not going to be able to escape. Well, and in, in a lot of this, he says it directly about the spectacle too. The spectacle's only goal is sustained growth. And he's really kind of saying the same thing economically, really the measure of if your economy is succeeding or not is whether or not you are still seeing gains. If you're stagnating or if things are going backwards, typically viewed as a bad sign. And if you're a human being working within this mechanism, you may be freed from some of the past hardships, but your goal is now to promote economic growth while you are at work in the system. Economic growth, if you just say it, I saw this cartoon. It was like, yeah, we destroyed the world, but for a brief second, we created a lot of value for shareholders. It's like these words like economic growth, shareholder value. There's sort of like other Wall Street finance stuff. But economic growth, what it really means is that you are getting more things that you value. That's how you create economic growth. Um, economic growth is now I have a phone. Now I have a smartphone. Economic growth is now I have a larger house. I now have more and more things. Now that might not make you more happy, especially if you lose connection with other people, but it's not like it's just sort of some abstract thing. It is real and it is tangible. It is more of your needs and wants being satisfied. And so I don't view it as a bad thing. Do you think it's attainable for everybody within a society or is it always going to be some people have the capacity to achieve economic growth but it's at the expense of people who don't i think both are possible i think it's possible for everyone to gain and i think it's possible for some people to gain at the expense of others it depends on the, the certain circumstances and you know time place that you're in if you think about slavery that's that's a pretty clear-cut example of someone gaining at the expense of someone else but on the other hand, I don't know, just if I just look at the world around me, clearly everyone here is better off than they were 300 years ago. I mean, even homeless people, they have phones, they have food. I mean, it's, it's really rare for someone to, like the most common person that starves to death now is a teenage girl, right? I mean, it's not like people on the street aren't capable of getting food and services. I mean, really the people that are on the street now are there because they have some form of mental health issue, either addiction or mental health issue in some, in some way. The bottom 20% of Americans consume more than the top 50% of like over half the countries in Europe. Like it's ridiculous how wealthy even the poor are here. After accounting for not just income, but also income, charity, and non-cash welfare benefits like subsidizing housing and food stamps, the poorest 20% of Americans consume more goods and services than the national averages for all people in most fluent countries. Okay, I found it. Above Canada, Greece, the UK, Sweden, and Australia, but slightly below France and the Netherlands. And Austria it was peer-reviewed by Henrik Schneider, mm. who's outside of the US and Germany and is the chief economist of the Swiss Federation of small and medium-sized enterprises. I ran across this, and I may have even mention it at the time. It was when we were talking about the 1619 Project, talking about poor people in America, how, how the OECD measures have a higher poverty rate in the U.S. than Mexico. Oh, and sure, it sure, was, sure. Okay. I remember know, this, yeah. But it was like the poverty rate is, is relative within the country. Like 35% of Mexico's population lives on less than $5.50 a day, but only 2% of people in the U.S. do. I mentioned this in a previous podcast and none of us remembered. It's, it was one of those things that sounded okay. familiar, but I was like, I've just 
heard it somewhere else too, I guess. The current reaction to the reaction to that by some, some people on the left is as they pivot into sort of an eco socialism is that this is, this is a bad thing that the, the poor are so well off because we're consuming so many natural resources and we're not sustainable, you know, ecologically speaking. It's about sustainability and consuming too much and economic impact of the poor. I think the sustainability thing is showing up in other places too. And some of it, I think, shows up in, I mean, definitely in marketing, clearly in marketing. Like when things are marketed to you, like, oh, this was made 85% recycled plastic or, or water bottles into making this shirt. Right. Like if you buy this specific t-shirt, we'll hug a baby turtle or so, something like that. I mean, the sustainability marketing is everywhere, but I think it's within products purchased too. Like it's nowadays, if you go to buy something, it'll say made with 100% oak or made with natural cotton from happy sheep. I don't know. Terrible examples, but the word organic is in everything. It's like you see organic and that's good. Well, right. But I mean, and I think sustainability is a really easy way to get people to buy in to whatever you're selling, because how could that sound bad? It's pushed in every single one of my business classes, sustainability, sustainability, sustainability. It's a buzzword. Well, yeah. And it's, it's also being pushed by, it's kind of a double standard because sustainability is pushed toward the consumer. You, the consumer are told that you are making a smart, informed, wise choice for the future if you buy the product made with 70% less plastic, regardless of if you're paying double or more for it. But you're made to feel like you are smart, you are helpful, you are socially conscious. However, it's not day-to-day consumers that are creating sustainability problems on the planet. It's not your specific actions in the products you're buying the real issue is a lot higher up. It's companies with giant carbon footprints and companies that are producing things in ways that are creating the issues, but the onus for the solution is placed almost entirely on the consumer. I think a great example for that is water. Mm-hmm. So um, if you go to, you know, any, I remember I went to California when it was in the middle of a drought and like, I had to take like a one minute shower like every other day. It was, it was ridiculous. And like residential consumption of water is like less than five or 10% of, I'm going to make up statistics again. It's, you know, it's not that much water. And really the, and especially in California, the things that make, um, that consume those water is agricultural things. And they grow, they grow a bunch of stuff that's not native to California. And so it requires a ton of water, like almonds and nuts and things like that. And so then the, the next question is, well, why are they growing all these things in California? And the answer is because it's, it's in the, the legal structure for water. It's, it's a use it or lose it thing. And they got these water rights a hundred years ago. Um, I, either they purchased them for the government or the government subsidizes the water for these agricultural plants. And then they have to use it all. And so it, Something that if, if, if you had to buy literally everything, every single piece of water, it would not be a financially good decision to grow almonds in a desert. 
but because the government's paying for the water, now it suddenly is. The same line fits for recycling. It's, it's another problem where the ownership is placed entirely on you. If you want to recycle, you can go to the trouble of sorting everything out. You can go to the trouble of making sure your materials meet the requirements. But at the end of the day, you don't have any direct control over what happens to the items you recycle. If your recycling is dumped into a can and your next door neighbor maybe didn't sort theirs and their products are contaminated, it's possible that your efforts put toward recycling don't amount to any recycling at all. But it's still up to you, like you said, with the water shortages, like residential you know, purposes needing to conserve water when the real users are agricultural, the same strain is placed on you to do your part and recycle correctly when you have no control over what happens next. When we started talking about sustainability, we got there by discussing economic growth in 40. And Luke, you had just said that you don't necessarily believe that economic growth is always a bad thing because it means if you personally are experiencing growth, more of your needs are being met. I, I agree with on the person to person level. I really do. However, I think on the whole, the concept of growth for the sake of growth isn't always positive. And I think it's for sure seen in economics. And it's also, DeBoer describes it as being seen in the spectacle. Um, I see it in test scores when we have kids that test into the 99th percentile for something, it's never, hey, good job. You're in the 99th percentile. It's always, okay, what are you going to do to push them further? They're here, you still need to show growth. And a lot of us sit here like, okay, they tested at the literal top of the student body. What do you want me to do? <laughs> so I, and I guess what I'm trying to get at is it's the idea that I do believe that growth can be positive and good and have good impacts on people, but only growth with a purpose. Like if I'm experiencing personal economic growth to meet my needs, that serves purposes for me. If I reach a point where all of my needs are being met, like I have what I want, I have what I need, or academically, if I'm achieving well, well, well above my peers, I, what is the point of measuring and accounting for growth just for the sake of measuring and accounting for growth? Well, well I think that the, the purpose of growth and, and profit is, so like if, if lemons are, you know, 50 cents a piece, people don't really care about lemons. And sugar is a dollar pound. I mean, it's, it's good. But then I take lemon, I have, I have an idea. I'm going to take some lemons and squeeze the juice out and mix it with the sugar and add some lemonade. water. I'm going to make lemonade. And, 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 oh, this is really good. I like lemonade. And so even though, and so people are now willing to pay me for lemonade, what I've done is I've taken resources that are less valued. I've taken lemons and I've taken water and I've taken sugar and I've combined them to create something new that people value, people want more. And I turn a profit. And so as long as the prices of all the inputs are fair, profits are good. Because what it means is I am creating value for society. I'm taking something that society values less 
and transforming it through my own ingenuity and my own labor into something that society values more. If you're playing within the rules of the game and the prices of things are fairly arrived at, then profits are inherently good because you're, like I said, you're transforming resources and things less valued into things more valued. Problem comes when you inject force, coercion, fraud, the system. That's where you, that's where you suddenly develop problems. Yeah. And how do you separate a fair profit if there are so many components of it that could have come from unfair methods? How can you truly separate yours and say that, yes, this was done by the book, fairly didn't harm anybody in the process? Thank you for listening to this episode of Left, Right, and Unwanted. Please tune in next time.